Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Uh, hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> How's it going? Real tentative response from you there, Bill. And on Ew. a week where we have stories that are all tech-related, I know you like that. Look, I'm off for like 10 days after this. So, <laughs> I'm so glad you said uh, this on the air after like two, two minutes after you told us <laughs> off the air. This is, this is some real candor. This is the kind of candor everyone appreciates from the Pro Se podcast. But yeah, we got, a, uh, we got an all tech show. We're talking about TikTok later. All of our Gen Z listeners are probably fired up about that. Finally, they say they, we, they, these guys go three years. They don't mention TikTok at all, and now and now your day has come. So yes, we talked to. I want I want uh, to bring the show to TikTok, but I'm just worried we would get well, owned. Yeah, like the, owned the, the, by the, the teens. <laughs> that's true. Uh, They'd make like videos mocking anyway. us. It would be tough. Yes, that's true. It would hurt my feelings. But we do have. I'm a fan of many technologies uh, all the time. As Bill said, we're talking uh, about TikTok later. And we have some great gig economy stuff and some computer chips. It's all on the menu here. Um, but uh, I think we should start. Um, like I say, uh, we got good. We got big uh, ride sharing intrigue, right, Amber? Yeah. Um, I mean, I like talking about tech companies anyway. But this is, of course, my sweet spot of bringing it back to employment law. Yeah. So what I wanted to bring up was a, a really huge ruling that happened this week in California about gig workers. A California state court judge issued a preliminary injunction that ordered Uber and Lyft to reclassify their California drivers as employees. That's a big win for state enforcers and also Mm -hmm. workers advocates in that state. Um, Just to sort of orient everybody, up until now, Uber and Lyft have um, considered all their drivers independent contractors. So that's a really common move that gig economy companies make. Um, under this ruling, though, in California, those workers have to be considered employees, and that means the companies are going to have to do things like offer sick leave, wage minimums, and a bunch of other job protections for those people. Yeah, we mentioned we mentioned that uh, this is going to be a show about tech companies, but it would appear at this point that Uber and Lyft's like main thing that they do, more so than technology, is just like not complying with labor laws. That seems to be the the, the trend that I've thus far uh, discovered. But um, well, but we I mean we talked about the, some of the big shifting that's been happening in California over the last year. How did we get up to this point where a court was actually ruling on this? Yeah, so last year California passed a law called AB five, and it made quite a splash. That law raised the bar for how you properly classify workers as independent contractors. So to lawfully classify a worker in that way, employers had to um, prove three elements. They called it an ABC test. We don't have to get into all of that. The most important one out of that test for the purposes of this conversation is whether or not the worker's duties are outside the employer's regular business. So when that law passed, as you can imagine, Uber and Lyft were immediate critics. They hated it. They refused to reclassify their workers, said that they didn't have to. Um, California Attorney General Xavier Becerra and city attorneys in San Francisco, San Diego, and L.A., all sued and are, of course, we're looking to force them to reclassify those drivers. So what Uber and Lyft argued is a real tech argument here. They said the duties of drivers are outside their regular business because Uber doesn't provide rides. Uber's regular business is a platform. It just connects independent contractors <laughs> to customers. This so, is this is funny. I mean, Bill literally, Bill was being somewhat glib, but he was like, they're not really a ride-sharing company. That's like, what you know, they yeah, said. Right. You were right with their argument there. Now, yeah. you know, we're chuckling a little because it seems like you're really parsing what's going on here. And yeah. that's how the judge in, in this instance 
viewed it as well. San Francisco Superior Court Judge Ethan Shulman, he just wasn't having it. He said in the ruling, quote, it's this simple. Defendants drivers do not perform work that is outside the usual course of their business. It's so funny, right? We always talk about parsing statutes like from the 1930s, from the 1890s, the Constitution. Yeah. This yeah. law was written last year, and everyone pretty sure. much knows what it was aimed at. So it's, it's one of those situations point. where you can't really be like, I wonder what they were thinking here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what you bring up there is sort of what I wanted to get into about this more broadly. I mean, obviously, Uber and Lyft care a lot about this in California, but... This case really represents something much, much bigger in society yeah. right now. It's just the fundamentals of the future of employment itself and, and yeah. how the gig economy has really changed that. So Uber and Lyft and a bunch of other companies like them, you know, not all ride sharing ones, a bunch of just gig economy companies have based entire business models on the idea yeah. that they can employ literally like armies of independent contractors and they're all excluded from almost all state and federal employment laws. So cases like this one could determine if that's lawful in California. Other states could pass similar laws, depending on how it all pans out. And that could really impact the whole economy because the profitability of these companies is on the line because they rely on those huge pools of independent contractor labor. Um, the judge in this one, too, really seemed to understand what I'm talking about and sort of the stakes at play here. He acknowledged that it'll be costly for Uber and Lyft to restructure their business to comply with AB5. And said the shift even could potentially have an adverse effect on some drivers who liked that they had really flexible work arrangements. Mm -hmm. But um, he said that just doesn't excuse you from not complying with a clearly written law and said this. Defendants may not evade legislative mandates merely because their businesses are so large that they affect the lives of many thousands of people. Yeah, this is this is interesting because it's like it speaks to the. It speaks to like the fact that these companies just quickly become behemoths in this space. Right. It was like they employ so many people. And like, yes, you can say, you know, it's true that like they, they provide some sort of, you know, on the, what, what they would love to say is that they, is that they provide people, you know, flexibility, like we were saying. Like it was like, you can just, you make your own hours, you work when you want to work, and we give you money for it. But, you know, laws are, you know, th this law was specifically written to make, to sort of say, like, if people are, like, working for you and, and, are, it's also and are performing duties of employees, you have other, you have other obligations there. Yeah. And it's also a little chicken and egg here, right? Like, yeah. are they only big behemoths because they didn't have to provide right. all of the things you would <laughs> normally have to give workers? Right. The employees. The answer is probably. So, yeah. So, I mean, they have in some ways created a whole business yeah. model that skirts around that growth problem that yeah. more traditional businesses have. So, so well, yeah. I was I was just going to say that's I mean, they're not the only company no. that has done that in the last few years. So the question is, what happens next? You know, both. I know that there are other there's other litigation involving AB5. What what else comes next? you know, in a big picture sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I've said up top that this was a really big and impactful ruling, but it's just the tip of the iceberg of this greater fight and battle we're having, both with Uber and Lyft and also more broadly as we're talking about. So 
Immediately, Uber and Lyft said they were appealing the ruling. Um, That ruling was actually paused by the state court judge that issued it until August 20th um, in order to basically let them file appeals because they knew it would be appealed. Yeah. The companies tried again to get an even longer stay of this requirement that they reclassify everyone uh, from that state court judge. And the state court judge just this morning said no. He said, like, okay, I've heard you guys make your appeals and start finding out at the appeals level. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's ongoing. And then the companies have also launched a constitutional challenge to the law in the Ninth Circuit. That's also pending. If that wasn't enough, guys, there's also some stuff going on outside of court. Uber and Lyft and a handful of other gig economy companies are pushing a ballot initiative. It's called Proposition 22 in the state of California. That's going to be on the ballot in November. And that would exempt gig economy companies from AB5. So they're throwing about $100 million uh, around in California to support that initiative. Yeah, um, is, so Bill was just talking on. about how, how, how directly the law was written and now they are performing their like forwarding their own very directly written proposition countering the law it's very yeah i mean there's just a lot of fronts in this fight and you can see that the reason that would happen is because the stakes are so high this really is the future of what work will look like for a lot of companies um so right now all this action i've been talking about is centered on california and what it means nationally is slightly more up in the air but there's a few things to note on that front too some states like Massachusetts have similar worker classification tests to AB5. So the ruling in California could actually be persuasive for yeah. lawsuits brought in those similar states. Um, the ruler, the ruling's greater impact outside California might just be to spur other states to say, like, oh, look, it passed muster in California. Mm-hmm. We're going to go ahead and, and push forward um, with some worker classification changes to our state laws. New York is looking at that right now, for example. Um but the biggest point of all, I think, is that November won't only have the ballot initiative to contend with. If we get a new president in Joe Biden, he has also promised to make the AB5 model a national standard. So we could really be looking at a big sea change if that election does um, go his way. OK, so as we mentioned at the up top of the show, uh, we're going to stay in the tech realm, but we're going to swing from talking about cutting edge labor law to cutting edge antitrust law. Oh, my. I know. Really <laughs> hitting up all our bases. So um, uh, a federal appeals court, uh, the Ninth Circuit this week, overturned uh, sort of groundbreaking. Some people called it radical um, antitrust ruling against Qualcomm, uh, which is the largest supplier of uh, the, the wireless chips that go into smartphones in the world. Um, the court ruled that that um, having having very sharp elbows was the the exact uh, phrase from the ruling in business is you know an aggressive stance but it doesn't necessarily put you uh, afoul of antitrust laws so coming right as uh, the the whole world is transitioning to 5G to a whole new world of smartphones um, the ruling will allow Qualcomm to maintain pretty unusual intellectual property practices that that critics and a lot of regulators in other countries have said limit competition and and increase prices for consumers certain corners of antitrust law and we'll 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 parse this out in more detail but like certain corners of it do come down to like how how good are you allowed to be at like the thing you're doing which Mm -hmm. is which is interesting and qualcomm is an interesting sort of entry point into this because i know that they were they, they have 
shifted their business model over several over a period of several years to sort of like be the chip like go to. But let's 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 talk a little bit about about how we got here. Well, I think it's an interesting way that you framed it, Alex, because <clears throat> thematically that is sort of the issue here. That that whether the extent to which you've you've succeeded at your business model to the point where you've gone too far. So <laughs> yeah. Qualcomm, I think a lot of people, at least people you know who are in their 30s, will remember in in the in the 90s and the early 2000s, Qualcomm made cell phones for a couple of years there. But yeah. the company is now a tech giant of the very first order, but on the back end of things, under the hood. Um, Qualcomm is by far the world's largest supplier of um, a few different types of chips that, that that go into iPhones and other smartphones mm-hmm. that um, allow them to connect to wireless networks. So I remember, yeah, pretty, I, mean, I remember when I first started. <laughs> yeah, it is it is very important. I remember when I first started reporting on tech, and it was like I remember like getting a story about Qual- I was like Qualcomm. Isn't this business like totally defunct? And then you yes. learn it was like yes, they are actually like the chip impresario. But yes, but the other big thing here is that the 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 other big part of their business is that. Um, they they have a huge portfolio of patents that they license to cell phone makers some yes. of which have been deemed all the all the patent nerds out there will know this but some of them have been deemed standard essential so for for modern cell, cellular technology which means that standard setting organizations come up with systems for how this technology is going to work and then they mm-hmm. mandate that you use certain technologies to make it work so you essentially have to license these patents to be up to code. So they're in a very powerful position in the world of, of cellular technology. Mm-hmm. So here's where it starts to get really interesting where you have that standard essential patent issue but up against antitrust law. I mean, they're required to license these to, the pe- to people that need them. And now we're going to have a big debate about how those licenses are structured and like yeah, what's the, yeah, fair. Yeah, the terms of those licenses. And, yeah, yeah, yeah when so- you, I mean, well, I was just going to say. I mean, when, when you when you combine the two things that we were just talking about the 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 fact that they are a dominant player for these very important chips, and what Amber just dis- ably described as this sort of complicated situation with their intellectual property, you get a situation where for years, Qualcomm's customers, their competitors, and and most importantly, regulators have all made a pretty similar accusation against the company that they're leveraging those two things to charge unfair prices, to yeah. act anti-competitively. Antitrust regulators in um, in China find the company nearly $1 billion in 2015. Uh, similarly, South Korea find the company $850 million in 2016. Um, the EU levied a $1.2 billion fine in 2018. And uh, people may have seen headlines that Apple, uh, who is one of Qualcomm's biggest buyers of chips, uh, sued the company in in U.S. federal court on very similar antitrust claims back in 2017. We should mention that Qualcomm ha- has said that you know that this isn't fair. That this we we are not acting anti competitively. Our, our licensing practices are entirely legal and. By the money that we're making from patent licensing is merely the rewards of decades of huge investments in research and development. We're not exploiting our market share to get people to pay for these mm-hmm. things or to to entrench ourselves. We are just we have created really important technology and we've done really well for ourselves. So again, like that theme Alex mentioned earlier, it's 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 two ways of looking at this sort of uh, extreme success that they've had in this space. So well, you said got- they're. 
<laughs> no, go ahead, Amber. So we've gotten to a point now where we have U.S. regulators getting in on this um, and trying to parse those those two ways of looking at the situation. Where have they netted out? So I mentioned all those fines brought in foreign jurisdictions, and we mentioned the private lawsuit brought by Apple. But in 2017, the Federal Trade Commission here in the U.S. Um, sued Qualcomm, echoing many of those same accusations. The The core claim was that the company had leveraged its monopoly over the chip market uh, to then yes. demand unreasonable licensing terms for its patents. Basically, it took part one of its business and it it, it used that to, to charge too much for part two. Mm-hmm. According to the FTC, Qualcomm would basically say to a company like Apple or Samsung, someone who needs to buy these chips, if you want to buy our chips, which, again, you, you basically <laughs> need to buy them to make like, a functioning phone in these 2020. These are the chips that you need, folks. Yes. <laughs> they would say, you need to agree to pay us for every phone you sell, even if it uses another company's chips. So, the, mm-hmm. so the, the, the general accusation was you're locking in the advantage that you have from, from this huge monopoly, and you're using it to, to exert this sort of uh, – the FTC called it a, a tax – on competitors, because mm-hmm. even if Apple is using another company's chips, they're still paying what the FTC is calling a tax. So that makes the competitors' uh, prices less competitive because they have to pay this. The, the, their buyers have to pay this extra charge, even if they're using the competitors' chips. So it it uh, that case was filed in January 2017, and it pushed us toward toward what we're seeing this week. It's a, it's a pretty, I mean, it's a compelling argument. We've already laid out the very dominant position that they have in, in you know, d- being the chip lord and the patent lord uh, and all of that. And it's they, and I know that in the initial stages of litigation, they found some, some sympathy from the district court. In 2019, in, in May of 2019, they found a lot of sympathy. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. A, a federal judge handed them basically a slam dunk, the, handed the FTC a slam dunk, saying that, um, uh, that, that Qualcomm's licensing practices had, quote, strangled competition. It was this just very long, like 200-plus page ruling yeah. that really thoroughly went through and and criticized Qualcomm for how it behaved. The quote, The modem chip market reflects the cumulative anti-competitive harm of Qualcomm's practices. Many of Qualcomm's rivals have exited, and those rivals that remain are hobbled by Qualcomm's anti-competitive harms. So... The judge issued this sweeping injunction, barring Qualcomm from doing this stuff where it would require the licenses when when it was selling the chips. She also ordered the company to license its its standard essential patents to competing chip suppliers on fairer terms. Basically, a court ordered Qualcomm to change the core of its business. And this is a many, many times over billion-dollar business. So mm-hmm. huge ruling they appealed it pretty quickly, and the Ninth Circuit stayed it, and we've been in litigation at the at the Ninth Circuit ever since. Okay, so I know at the top of this, you said that the Ninth Circuit overturned that ruling, saw it very differently. So how did how did they do that? What what did they decide? Uh, what the Ninth Circuit basically said was that Qualcomm's business practices are aggressive; they're profit maximizing, but that doesn't necessarily make them illegal. Uh, the the court rejected the claim that Qualcomm had used its chips to win unfair licensing terms on its intellectual property. 
Um, the court noted that the company charges those same fees regardless of whether a supplier use the, uses the company's chips, you know, and it can sort of feel like you're, ta- you're, you're, you're in two different worlds here when you're talking about this stuff yeah. um, based on what the FTC said about that same situation. But the court basically said that's not an antitrust problem. It's not harming your direct competitors here because the, the way that you're selling these chips – is is neutral. Um, the court did leave open the idea that Qualcomm had breached its its contractual duties and uh, to to fairly license those standard essential patents. There's a whole framework in place for how that works. Yes. But what the court said was that that is not the domain of antitrust law. That's just not a thing that can be solved in an antitrust case. The quote. Mm-hmm. Anti-competitive behavior is illegal under federal antitrust law. Hyper-competitive behavior is not. The court went on to add uh, that Qualcomm has, quote, asserted its economic muscle with vigor, imagination, devotion, and ingenuity. It has also acted with sharp elbows, as businesses often do. Our job is not to condone or punish Qualcomm for its success, but rather to assess whether the FTC has met its burden under the rule of reason to show that Qualcomm's practices have crossed the line. And what the court said was that they clearly had not met that burden. For our main segment this week, we're talking about TikTok, the hugely popular social media platform that President Trump recently labeled a national security threat over its connections to China. U.S. officials are exploring a number of legal options with TikTok, ranging from uh, an outright ban to forcing the sale of a company to an American owner like Microsoft. Here to break down this whole messy, the legal details under this whole messy situation are Ben Horney, Law360's senior M&A reporter, and Alex Lawson, who is uh, typically my co-host here on the show, but is also Law360's senior international trade reporter. They're the two guys that we needed on the show to break down this situation. So welcome. Yeah, really just welcome to Ben. I, I'm, I'm here all the time. It's, it's, it's great to have Ben here. First timer. Uh, thought, our house is your house, Ben. I thought you would take you. the take the moment. So you know, I wanted to b- welcome you back to the show, give you a little moment in the spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> it was great when I was here five minutes ago talking about something else, and now I'm back. Um, so let's let's start with um, we mentioned that the the thing that most people probably saw that made the most headlines, which was uh, President Trump's threats, plans, executive actions to ban TikTok, and we saw an order. This this last week. Um, so, Alex, I know you wrote a feature about that yep. order and what it means and the confusion around it. But just sort of walk us through what that order actually did. Yeah. So this has been kind of a fascinating um, exercise in trying to bring Trump's sort of pronunciation, like, you know, proclamations from the bully pulpit into actual meaningful policy. So he's been talking about, you know, in quotes, banning TikTok for several weeks. And he handed out a pair of executive orders last week that sort of nominally aimed to do that, 
but may do it in kind of a weird piecemeal way. Mm-hmm. What you need to know is that the order deems TikTok and also a different app uh, owned by a Chinese company called WeChat, uh, which is like a messaging and mobile payment service. It deems those apps a threat to national security. We'll talk a little bit more about why they think that with Ben in just a couple of seconds. That it basically has to do with data privacy concerns and censorship and things like that. But the executive orders don't shut down those apps just like by fiat, um, which you can do. Uh, but they chose not to. The orders basically say that in 45 days, and again, we're 45 days from last Thursday, so mm-hmm. it's like September 20th, U.S. companies and uh, and individuals will be banned from conducting certain transactions with TikTok and WeChat's uh, parent companies. So that's so basically what lays the groundwork. What does that mean? What 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 are those transactions? Does it is it some broader term than than I'm hearing, or is it what is, what does it mean when they say that they're going to ban transactions? Well, that's the that's the huge question right now. I mean, that is the million dollar question that uh, I was speaking to attorneys to all. Uh, uh, basically, ever since the orders came out, and to understand what they might do, we have to. We should talk just a little bit about the law that sort of gives rise to these orders. Um, the operative law is the International Emergency Economic Powers Act (IEPA), and that is basically the bedrock of modern sanctions law. And it gives the president authority to restrict international commerce. Uh, in the name of national security. It's a hugely broad law. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can just sanction someone, a company, freeze their U.S. assets, and bar any U.S. commerce from them, uh, uh, or any commerce with them, like clean and simple. But they didn't do that. And the reason is because it's one thing to sanction a company that's like, you know, in Mozambique and violating Iran sanctions. And you say, okay, never do business with them again. They're blacklisted. Don't do it. Quite another thing to try and do that with um, a very popular smartphone app that already has hundreds of thousands of users in the United States. Um, and it's not very clear how you would sort of squeeze out the toothpaste and put it back in the tube. Right. Um, but in, my, in the course of my discussions, I did talk to some people about some examples of what they might do, the types of transactions. Uh, it's false to the U.S. Department of Commerce. The Commerce Department uh, in September is going to sort of lay out a list of things that you can and cannot do with the TikTok and WeChat parent apps. And like a couple of, just a couple of examples, uh, they could ban, you know, companies like Apple and Google from hosting the apps in their app stores, which right, would basically... That seem, right, that seems like a like an easy sort of quick, quick move here. Yeah, that, yeah. they're saying like that. that is a, I mean, basically it's a financial law. Like it, it covers anything to do with the exchange of money. And like, you know, you, you, you pay money to have, you know, the, the, the app hosted in these app stores. Um... And so that would basically prevent anyone from downloading the app anew. Now, that doesn't really cover the vast number of people who already have the app on their phones. But there's a number of things they could do. They could ban ad sales on the apps. They could ban banks from processing any purchase, like any in-app purchases that would happen um, mm-hmm. in, in, in those contexts, which is a huge deal with WeChat, incidentally, because it's a mobile payment service. So you can basically say... No U.S. bank can process any transaction that goes on uh, on that app. Um, so there's a lot of different directions they could go. Um, this applies only to financial considerations, not sort of the transmission of personal data. So it's not like you, consumer X, by using TikTok are not violating sanctions law. Right. No one really has to worry about that. But such as, you know... The extent to which the uh, TikTok will be banned, you know, in quotes, depends on the patchwork of transactions that are and are not allowed and how they can weather that storm. They're effectively trying to bleed it of some resources. 
And, you know, if it can weather that storm and use offshore servers or anything like that, you know, we'll have to see. But the state of the ban is, like, very much in flux. So I wanted to turn this to Ben because, yeah. um, you know, e- even before all this, uh, the, the recent, you know, headline-grabbing stuff with President Trump, TikTok was already facing scrutiny from from the U.S. in sort of a different context. And, Ben, I know you've been covering this closely, so walk yes. us through what was happening, you know, separate. From, from what we've seen this, this, this past week. Yeah, well, so first of all, thanks for having me. It's a yeah. real honor to uh, finally make an appearance. Um, I, said, yeah. I said our house is your house, and you're literally in your house. So, <laughs> I that, am in so, my so that works house. out really well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, the scrutiny of TikTok um, originally, it seems, was coming from the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is commonly called CFIUS. Uh, And that's an interagency committee within the U.S. Treasury Department. It was formed in 1975, and it examines mergers and acquisitions for national security purposes. So Mm -hmm. historically, CFIUS uh, would look at deals involving chip semiconductor chip makers or companies that make components used in weapons and stuff like that. Um, And yeah, so people were a little bit confused, I think, that TikTok was being looked at uh but there are reasons that we'll get into yeah so um, i mean what, well, what, what are the sorry go ahead alex yeah well what are the i mean i think it's important to note um you know it 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 it, it reviews mergers for security implications but specifically mergers from for the involving foreign companies yes, right that's exactly. why it's a committee on foreign investment um and i think it's important i think to talk about when cifius reviews deals or even i mean this was already a consummated deal but foreign ownership of u uh, foreign ownership of companies that operate in the US what are the remedies that they can do if they if they perceive a security threat well so well so first of all uh, i think it's important to note that cfius has very broad jurisdiction so yeah. it's uh it looks at you know deals where there's foreign investment in US companies but it can also look at deals where it's just straight up foreign uh, domiciled companies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If it sees that there's a reason that there might, you know, be harm to U.S. national security. Um, and so in terms of remedies, uh, there's uh, if you're doing a deal and you have reason to believe that it might be something CFIUS would be interested in, you can file a voluntary notice with CFIUS and inform them of the deal and say, here's what we're planning to do. So let's say in the case of TikTok, uh, if it was sold to a U.S. company, the or if the U.S. operations were sold to a U.S. company, you could say mm-hmm. we're going to ha- have no servers outside of the United States, mm-hmm. and all the servers that do have you know information or whatever uh, that were in China, we're shutting those down. And um, so that's you know an example. And you can try to have these ways to ease the concerns and say the foreign owner is not going to have the control or access to mm-hmm. the information that you, Cifius, are concerned about. So yeah, there's a. Yeah, there's a there's a couple different like ways to go at it, right? Like I say, I just talked about how Trump is sort of saying he'll ban you know TikTok entirely, whereas the entire point of the CFIUS process is maybe not to ban it, but you sort of wrestle it away from it from foreign ownership, and then it's not mm-hmm. a security risk anymore. I mean, is that fair to well, say? Well, so that's uh, one of the unique things about this is that CFIUS reportedly has been actually investigating TikTok since November, mm-hmm. um, and normally the way it works is. Uh, CFIUS is usually very quiet about what it does. You don't really mm-hmm. hear much from yeah. the agency uh, until maybe if it recommends to the president that action gets taken, they'll put mm-hmm. out like a short statement basically yeah. confirming what the president has done. Uh, in this case, 
what's really unusual is that Trump and then not just him, but other people in his uh, administration have been talking about TikTok, you know, with reckless abandon. Uh, no yeah. one cares when they're talking about it, who they're talking to. And the whole ban talk confused everything because, yeah, Syphius usually would either um, want to recommend to the president that a deal be blocked. Although in this mm-hmm. case, as you noted earlier, Alex, yeah. this is actually a deal that happened in 2018. Yeah. It was the merger of TikTok and an entity called Musical.ly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then that created what we know as TikTok today, which is the mm-hmm. hugely popular um, app. So another thing Syphius could do in this case, again, they have broad jurisdiction, so they could tell the president that he should force that deal to be unwound, which mm-hmm. in this case would really mean the U.S. Uh, operations of TikTok need to be in the U.S. So a United yeah. States company needs to be the owner. It can't be uh, the Chinese owner, which is called ByteDance. Yeah. Uh, so ByteDance would be compelled by the U.S. government to uh, sell off the U.S. operations and not have control over the uh, TikTok app. Ben, we've been talking a lot about the process here of how this stuff works, but could we could we pull back a little bit and talk about why you know TikTok has drawn this scrutiny? We were talking before about how Cepheus typically has looked at at things like military technology, yeah. at, at at things like that. TikTok, while very important to many people, <laughs> doesn't seem to quite check that box. So why yeah. does Cepheus care about TikTok? Why has it drawn sort of the spotlight here? The answer is because U.S. national security is greatly imperiled by me lip-syncing to Megan the Stallion. It's as simple as that, folks. We uh, no, can't we can't have our citizens embarrassing themselves? No. Well, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> no, no, yeah, t- yeah. So, yeah, TikTok is actually a great example of the broadened jurisdiction of CFIUS, which uh, there was a 2018 law called the Foreign Risk Review Modernization Act. Uh, or FIRMA, mm-hmm. and that uh, extent expanded the purview of CFIUS. So, as you know, we've been saying historically, it's looking at like weapons or military and stuff like that. Uh, under FIRMA, CFIUS can look at any company or deal where it involves data, personal mm-hmm. uh, identifiable data. So, in the case of TikTok, you know, you have these hundreds of thousands of American users. Yeah. Any information they've given to the app. Uh, CFIUS is concerned the you know Chinese government essentially could um, get that information and who knows how they could use it you know there's an array of ways that they could potentially use it that could be harmful to national security one example I was thinking of is you know let's say some politician has a TikTok account but it's anonymous mm-hmm. but they signed up using an email that's associated with them if the Chinese government was able to get that data that person could now be a blackmail target right? because maybe they don't want it to be publicly known that they have this account. And I mean, that's just one example. It's so wrapped up in the baggage of the, you know, that, that companies in China are, are inherently linked to the government in ways that they're not in, in Western countries. So it's a tricky, tricky situation. Yeah. Um, And there was, there was a 2017 uh, national intelligence law in China. And under that law, I I wanted to talk to you about this. Yeah. Oh yeah. So let's get into it. No, yeah, I mean, no, just t- the floor is yours. Yeah. It basically gives um, them a broad remit. I know that. Yeah, yeah, so basically, you know, as Bill was saying, uh, even companies that aren't directly linked to the government in China are still linked uh, as far as we're concerned. Mm-hmm. And um, even those companies under this 2017 law, the Chinese government can basically compel any company to c- give them access to any information. So TikTok, if it remains based in China, 
if the Chinese government decides, hey, we want a list of every single American user, their phone number, their email, whatever other information they've given, uh, the company would have no course to not mm-hmm. give it to them. They would yeah. have to. Yeah, they basically kick the door in and say, yeah, you know, the data is ours. Um, as we were talking to you now, we wanted to have you on this week because Lord knows what's going to be going on with TikTok, you know, two mm-hmm. weeks from now. So we don't quite know how this saga will resolve itself. But I know you also did a story that looked at sort of that this is putting a lot of deals attorneys and, and trade attorneys on notice as far as how the government reviews the the you know foreign ownership of companies that rely on data. You know, are there any uh, what did they have to say about what this, you know, this very high profile TikTok case could say about future government efforts in this area? Yeah, well, so this this basically is an indicator of what could happen in the future with any deal. Uh, yeah. Any popular social media app, whether it's based in China or whether it's based somewhere else mm-hmm. uh, that has that gets popular and has a lot of U.S. users, CFIUS might look at it and the U.S. government might be unhappy with the foreign ownership. Um so basically what I've been hearing from people is that attorneys are preparing for like many more situations like this going forward um, because in the wake of the FIRMA law being passed, mm-hmm. any company that has personal data of American users are now on the radar uh, of CFIUS. Uh, and this actually isn't even the first, even though it's like the most high profile case, it's not the first time a app like this has come under CFIUS scrutiny. Uh, last year, the dating app Grinder. CFIUS forced the Chinese parent of that company to sell it to a U.S. company because they didn't want oh, okay. any information from that app, uh, you know, being in the hands of someone else. So that case didn't necessarily get as high of a profile as TikTok, sure. but it was the same idea. The issue was this app has user info that we don't want in the wrong hands. Well, that's the thing. Any of these, any, you know, it's it's hard to imagine a company nowadays that doesn't have user data that doesn't have these, uh, you know, these now problematic features that Cepheus is looking into. Um, ben, we uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. It's a super interesting topic. Um, I'm sure that all the uh, all the TikTok heads out there will be uh, <laughs> uh, will be watching it very closely. Uh, like I said, we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm always happy to come on to talk specifically about TikTok. Rules. Thanks, man. Thank you. tech show today guys i think we're about out of time for everything well no i mean i did want to i mean guys we would be remiss we have been many people say that the pro se podcast has been noticeably silent on the presidential ambitions of kanye west i don't know alex i think we've been <laughs> quite i think we've been quite pro yay <laughs> oh wow Ooh. uh no i you know i don't we're not here to litigate the sincerity of kanye west's presidential uh run however i will say it is at least serious enough that he's getting into a lot of election law entanglements. Uh, this week in Wisconsin, um, uh, his lawyers filed a legal challenge uh, because the the relevant state law in Wisconsin requires you to fire to, to file paperwork to get on the ballot uh, no later than five p.m. 
And apparently the 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 West uh, campaign campaign in quotes uh, filed that paperwork at fourteen seconds past five p.m. Uh, and this is now the subject of a very rigorous legal challenge whether the seconds the literal seconds that ensue after the hour is struck at five encompass the five o'clock hour. I absolutely love when we get into situations like this because it definitely feels. Sort of like a stoned dorm room conversation of a legal argument where you're like, no, but dude, does five even include the time after five or is it the moment of, are we living in the moment? Listen to this guy, listen to this (laughs) quote from the, from the lawyer, his lawyers, the Kanye West lawyer is a guy named Michael Curran for the average observer arriving before 501 PM is arriving not later than 5 PM. The phrase not later is particularly instructive in that it indicates the presumption that the seconds from 50000 to 50059 are inclusive to 5 PM. Honestly, this is what people go to law school for. For something to be filed later than 5 PM, it would have to be filed at 5.01 p.m. They think that 5.01 p.m. is the start of This is later. what we get legal training for to figure out how to argue about those 59 <laughs> seconds in yes. dispute and yeah. put it into that great quote where it's like precise legal language there. Uh, love it. Can't wait to I'm see riveted. how it turns out. I'm riveted. I'm throwing my diamonds in the sky. I'm very excited to see where it goes. I wish him I'm... nothing but the worst in this argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you put this on our radar, Alex. And yeah, yeah we'll have to track that one and see how it goes down, down the line. Um, thanks for a great show, everybody. Uh, thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you again next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest, Ben Horney, and contributing reporters this week, Matthew Perlman, Braden Campbell, and Ann Cullen. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, go ahead and leave us a written review and a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform wherever you're listening right now. If you want to read more about anything we talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.